Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the latest episode of the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Um, Looking forward to today's sessions. Another really interesting and really enjoyable to me, two movies uh, that we saw this time. Don't know that it could be much different from the last episode we did, which was uh, Enneagram Type 7 and Trainwreck and Beverly Hills Cop. As always, uh, Mario Sakura. I'm here with TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, my co-hosts. And TJ Dahl, tell us what movies we're going to talk about today and why. We're going to look at The Imitation Game, which is the movie from 2014, the biopic about Alan Turing and how he led the team to crack the German Enigma machine and help bring World War II to a close just a little bit shorter than it otherwise would have been. And Annihilation, which is a horror movie from 2018, by written and directed by Alex Garland. So both movies that explore various elements of Type 5. And we'll get into the nitty gritty, and I'm really excited for this. Good. Yeah, me too. TJ and Gracia, had you seen these movies before? I had seen The Imitation Game, really liked it, had not seen Annihilation. Horror, it's not my <laughs> cup of tea generally, although it's not exactly, it's not like a slasher kind of a horror right, film. Right. But it is very. Um, I'm a little jumpy. And so, so, <laughs> so especially watching these movies uh, uh, late at night is little tough for me but I, gotcha. I made it through gotcha so the uh the, the howling bear then was probably a, a, uh it a, a will haunt my nightmares moment. forever <laughs> as it should uh-huh yeah and interestingly enough um the, the the director of that movie also wrote one of my all-time favorite zombie movies and i'm a big zombie movie guy uh 28 days later which is um the first 28 days is probably the first movie that ever just really scared the crap out of me. I remember going to see that movie and uh, going home and turning on all the lights. I was home alone, so uh, <laughs> turned on all the lights. And 28 days later was right up there with the same degree of creepiness and uh, hard pass. <laughs> I'm a big fan of both those movies, and uh, and I, I like both of these movies too. So I, I look forward to talking about them. Uh, T.J. Daw, how about you? Had you seen them before? I saw the Imitation Game on a day off from tour a number of years ago, so just rented it and watched it on the computer and liked it then, and. Then watching it this time, I'll get into the more specifics, but I liked it, and then it really wore thin on me. Ah, Annihilation I saw in the theaters. Like TJ and Gracia, horror is not my thing. I could probably count on my fingers the number of horror movies I've seen in my life total. But this isn't a slasher film. This isn't torture porn. This isn't. It does have one jump scare, but that's not the nature of what makes it frightening. And I am a fan of Alex Garland, which did begin with... Uh, 28 Days Later, as well as with his novels. He was a novelist before he was ever working in movies. And I've read a number of his novels and I thought, yeah, let's give this a chance. Again, day off on tour, saw it on the big screen. <laughs> was like, whoa. Now the movie flopped, so I easily could never have heard of it or much less seen it. So I'm really glad that I did. And I'm really glad you're both open to watching it for this. 
Yeah, I was only uh, passingly aware of the movie. It was a big flop um, and uh, uh, disappointing. And there was a lot of controversy, too, a battle between the two producers of the movie over the marketability of the final cut, right? Um, One producer wanted to make the Natalie Portman character more likable and change the ending. And the other producer who had final uh, rights to it stuck to his guns and to uh, the director's guns, I think made it a better movie, but also much less accessible, right? This is not a warm movie by any stretch. And I have a theory about these two movies. One of them was a movie about a five made by non-fives. And the other one was a movie about at least one character who probably was a five made by a five. And the tone of the movies really couldn't be more different when you think about it, right? Both talking about type five, but very, very flat. And I think that even though the character in the imitation game was more clearly a five, you can point to that and say, yeah, this is a five and this is why. And with the Natalie Portman character, it's like, yeah, I think she's a five, but you know, it's not hugely clear cut, but that is a five movie, right? For sure. Thoughts on that before we get into type five. Yeah, the imitation game is almost like sort of your stereotypical, almost a caricature of a... I mean, he's playing a real person. Although I, in doing some research for the film, it did seem like there's a lot of controversy over right. historical accuracies and... And what touring was actually like. Because, right, exactly, yeah. yes. But very much the sort of the nutty, absent-minded professor, more interested in books than people, and very clearly the stereotype. Whereas, as you say, with Annihilation, it's kind of like... I mean, the whole Annihilation itself is like a metaphor wrapped in a psychedelic dream kind of a thing, you know? (laughs) As I've said with other films we've talked about, I don't really know what the hell the metaphor is supposed to be, but there's something going on there. Uh, But, but, you know, it makes it interesting to talk about. Well, it felt very 2001 to me, in a way, right? I I couldn't help but think about Kubrick in 2001 with with Annihilation. But we're going to have that. TJ Dahl, were you going to say something? Yeah, with the imitation game, watching it really crystallized a genre that most people and I have never thought of as a genre, which is an Oscar bait drama of like, let's make this based on a true story, inspiring triumph over adversity story with British actors and a period setting. And let's dangle all of these things in front of the Academy of Arts and Sciences and let's win ourselves some Oscars, damn it. And it did. It, it at least won one Oscar, which was for the screenplay. And None of those things that I just described are very five-ish, you know, (laughs) triumph over adversity, inspiring story, that kind of thing, bending the truth to make it a more inspiring story, heartwarming, all of those things, very non-five. And it's this character very much is a five, like we've talked about, but it's kind of a five bent into this particular shape to achieve this end. And winning an Oscar is one of the most prestigious things in American culture much less being nominated for an Oscar or being right. involved in a movie that is It's winning. way, way bigger than a Nobel Prize. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very three-ish, quite yeah. honestly, as well as just the idea of like, let's bend the truth in order to tell the story that we want. And there's a real danger with movies like this that people take it as history. It's really hard not to, because how many people have the time and the bandwidth and the interest to research it and say, okay, where did this differ from the truth? Right. Right. And uh, according to Wikipedia, somebody had quoted in there, this movie was about 42% accurate 
on the facts, <laughs> right? I mean, that was the number it gave, okay? And, um, and I also felt that you could have taken this movie and done a mashup with A Beautiful Mind and, you know, taken pieces of it, mixed them together, made two separate movies and not really have known Right, you know, it could have been like a uh, a Ron Howard thought experiment in a way, you know. So, (laughs) now that said, I really liked the movie. Okay, it hit those heartstrings in me, which is again weird that we're talking about heartstrings in a movie about a five. Okay, Uh, so um, and it was directed by Morton Tildum who made a movie I really liked called Headhunters. He's a Norwegian director, and it was a Norwegian movie. I really enjoyed Headhunters, but boy, couldn't have been more of a different movie than this. Um, so uh, kind of an erotic thriller, as I remember uh, when, I, when I saw it years ago. Anyway, so fun stuff. It's going to be a rich conversation here, but let me, we're jumping ahead here and, you know, kind of talking about fives before we're talking about what a five is. So let's go to that. Uh, Enneagram type five is what we call striving to feel detached, right? So it's a cerebral analytical person who is trying to create a buffer between themselves and the world, an emotional buffer. So they're not impacted by their emotions as much as they might be. Now, this is not to say that they don't have emotions. In fact, most fives, you know, will say to you, yes, I have emotions. I just kind of keep them to myself. And if I ever let them out, there's going to be this explosion and and that sort of thing. So they can be very sweet, very sensitive people. But Again, they're trying to create an emotional distance between themselves and the world to detach from it. Uh, the connection, we, we call the connection to point eight, the neglected strategy, meaning that they neglect striving to feel powerful. Then this does not mean that they're not powerful people. Okay, Warren Buffett is a type five. Bill Gates is probably, you know, is a type five. These are really powerful people. The characters in this movie are powerful people, but it's an intellectual sort of power. It's not a physical, visceral, strong presence in the room kind of power that we see in type eight. And it's a tendency really to not so much engage with the world, um, you know, physically and you know get down into the dirt a lot of it tends to be very cerebral now there's this myth that all fives are really smart and uh you know very much cerebral they're in their you know their investigators want to know all these things that's not necessarily the case i've met some fives who you know quite simply are not going to invent the computer okay uh or you know figure out you know how this whole alien refraction of dna works uh, you know like we see in our two characters in the movies but there is this sort of cerebral quality to them as if they live in their heads rather than in their bodies the connection to point 7 is what we call the support strategy and in fact Fives have a tendency to get excited about things intellectually in a way that actually pulls them away from the world, right, rather than pushing them to engage in it. And again, we see this particularly in the uh, touring character, and we will call him the touring character, really, rather than touring himself, because apparently it was a very different character. But um, it's almost like I get excited about things that don't have to do with people. Okay, so that I can, you know, get into my work and I can get really enthusiastic about it and that sort of thing. So uh, striving to feel excited actually reinforces detachment. 
The core qualities are intuition, vitality, and joy at points five, uh, eight, and seven. And again, the five feels disconnected from those things. They feel disconnected from the intuition of their inner knowing, so they rely on the knowing of the head, of the analysis, of the stepping back to figure out the classic vice fixation and virtue. The vice is avarice, meaning this sort of holding on to things. It's sometimes called greed, but it's not a greediness of, you know, oh, I want your money sort of thing. It's more... It's not, I want what you have, it's, I want what I have, and I don't want you to take it from me, particularly my energy. It's not like they're, you know, holding on to every last penny, although you might see that in a preserving five, but it's more of, don't suck up my resources, energy, you know, etc. Stinginess is the fixation. Again, it's this holding on to something. There's a lot of overlap to those two things. And the virtue is non-attachment. It's this not only letting go of this need to hold on to myself, but the ability to be detached in a healthy way. I can express my emotions, but not become fixated on them. Right? I can engage with the world, but not uh, not feel like I need to, rather than feeling like I need to hold it at arm's length and so forth. So the virtue is more along the lines of this uh, sort of Buddhist concept of non-attachment, where I'm engaged in it, experiencing, but not attached to what's happening at the time. What else would you guys say about fives that I didn't talk about? The affect of five quite often goes between flat and really prickly. And I have witnessed and known, been friends with different nines who have misidentified as, as fives. Because one of the things that's talked about with fives is how they like to get into something. If a five is interested in a topic, they will go down that rabbit hole and stay there for a long time and not want to be disturbed. Well, fives aren't the only kinds of people that do that. You know, all kinds of people might do that. Nines have been known to do that, to get lost in something. The difference is nines generally are pleasant and self-effacing and approachable. And Russ Hudson, who's a five, said no five has ever been described as pleasant and self-effacing. There's, there's, there's this sharpness to fives. And fives, no matter how intelligent they themselves are, value intelligence. And the correlation to that is that they really have a disdain for a lack of intelligence. And if they see somebody spouting off something that they consider to be unintelligent, a five will come in and throw a dart at that thing and kind of make blood sport out of taking that person down, almost like they're vivisecting an insect, plucking at one wing and one leg at a time with cruel precision because they know they can. And a great phrase that Russ came up with once as well is he said, a five is like an eight just compacted into a skull. <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, first of all, I I, I want to be careful to everybody out there that we're not, you know, portraying fives, you know, all as kind of psycho killers and the people that are going to pull the well, wings not off all of them, them not all of them, right? Yeah, ninety six, ninety seven percent maybe, but no, I'm kidding. But uh, but w what you're saying, TJ, I, I agree with you as a you know a pattern that we see in fives. So in in my work. The way I think about this is because they're kind of neglecting that strategy of striving to feel powerful, this sort of, you know, physical, visceral engagement with the world, they they express that anger at point eight intellectually, right? So there's this intellectual hostility 
that they have. You're absolutely right. It's they, they can turn this thing on and just dismiss and demean and insult people who they view as um, stupid. Okay. Um, and, and again, we, we certainly see this in the imitation game as, a, uh, as an approach. All right, so let's get to talking about the movies here. And uh, TJ Ingrassia, you're going to tell us about The Imitation Game. The Imitation Game is the 2014 historical drama starring Benedict Cumberbatch as Alan Turing, the renowned British mathematician, logician, and cryptanalyst. Set during World War II, the film tells the story of Turing and his team of codebreakers at Bletchley Park, England. Their mission is to decipher the complex German Enigma code, which was believed to be unbreakable and crucial to the outcome of the war. Turing, a brilliant but socially awkward mathematician, faces numerous challenges, including skepticism from his colleagues and the pressure to complete their work before the Germans change the codes. The film delves into Turing's personal struggles as a gay man in a society that criminalized homosexuality at the time. It explores his relationship with Joan Clark, played by Kira Knightley, a fellow codebreaker, and the emotional toll that his secrecy and isolation take on him. The Imitation Game highlights Turing's groundbreaking work in developing the concept of the modern computer, known as a Turing machine at the time, and his pivotal role in deciphering the Enigma Code. Ultimately, the film showcases the profound impact his contributions had on the war effort and the development of technology, as well as the tragic consequences of his persecution due to his sexual orientation. Have you decrypted a single German message? My machine will work. Sooner or later, you will make a mistake. What if I don't fancy Joan in that way? It's illegal. They are looking for any excuse to put you away. You've got more secrets than the best. Am I a criminal? Am I a war hero? You don't get to decide who lives and who dies. No one else can. You will never understand the importance of what I am creating here. Sometimes it is the people who no one imagines anything of who do the things that no one can imagine. Yeah, re- really sad story with Turing because he was a giant. I mean, now, as we've already alluded to, this movie is pretty. Um, takes loosely some real based. Uh, loosely based, <laughs> yes. Uh, there, there was a guy named Alan Turing, and you know he did do some of these things. But you know, today he's increasingly more relevant as we move toward a an AGI, right? A artificial general intelligence. Okay, and that's distinct from artificial intelligence because the general intelligence is sort of this universal problem-solving machine that he talked about, and the famous Turing test was a test that we will know that a computer is intelligent when a human is having a conversation with it and cannot tell they are not talking to another human. Now, what's interesting about this is that Turing's view was this not only gets into the nature of machines, but it gets into the nature of what is intelligence and sentience to begin with, right? What makes a human intelligent what makes what's the distinction between humans and animals one human and another etc so these are all really interesting and important philosophical themes that are becoming increasingly important as we move in this direction 
So, um, and, and by the way, it just is interesting as we're recording this, uh, the latest issue of Philosophy Now magazine, which I'm sure you guys subscribe to, uh, right, um, it features Alan Turing on the cover. And it's an issue about artificial intelligence. If you're interested in these things, you can check it out. Um, TJ and Gracia, what was five-ish about this movie to you? Sure. Well, I'd say we'll start from the opening lines of the film. So it, it opens with a monologue from Turing, uh, which we find out uh, later is him having this conversation with the detective that has arrested and interrogated him for indecency. And uh, the opening lines, uh, this is Turing speaking. He says, are you paying attention? Good. If you're not listening carefully, you will miss things, important things. I will not pause, I will not repeat myself, and you will not interrupt me. You think that because you're sitting where you are and I'm sitting where I am, you are in control of what's about to happen. You're mistaken. I am in control because I know things that you do not know. And how perfectly five-ish, you know, <laughs> like, okay, for an eight, power is power, right? For the five, knowledge is power. He's in this interrogation room. He's being held against his will, essentially, but he still has the control and power because he has the knowledge. And he's basically saying to the detective later on, I'm going to tell you the full story. If you're going to judge me, that's fine, but you need to know all the facts and all, have all the data before you judge me. So let me tell you first. And it's just, you know, what, what a perfectly five-ish way to start the film. Yeah, there's a very little about this character that's not five-ish. I mean, you could just go through everything. This remind I could not help of uh, thinking about Sheldon Cooper through most of this movie from the Big Bang Theory, right? I mean, this uh, this character just was so Sheldon Cooper-ish, but with a bit more humanity, right? I really think that Cumberbatch did a really nice job of showing flashes of humanity and emotion underneath the surface that he was working so hard to repress and detach from. Okay, so that would something to me made this a really interesting performance. Um, uh, so, um, good. so any anything else, TJ and Gracia first, anything else jump out as five-ish to you? Yeah, I think the scene where he's not getting the funding or the, or the stuff that he's wanting from the commander who's overseeing the project. So he asks him who his boss is and, and he says sort of mockingly, Oh, he's Winston Churchill. You want to, you have a problem? Take it <laughs> up with 10 him. Downing street. You know, right. London, so Turing Southwest writes block. him a letter and Churchill puts him in charge. So there's a scene in the commander's office where Turing says, okay, so, so I'm allowed to give these men orders now. Right. And the commander very grudgingly says, you know, I hate to say it, but yes. And he immediately says, you know, whatever, John and Rick, you guys are fired because they're mediocre linguists and they're terrible code breakers. And it felt a little bit, you have this idea of the contradiction of the five as reserve versus hostility. Yeah. And I don't think he's being openly hostile in a, a malevolent antagonistic kind of way, but uh, you talk about how they can be arrogant and dismissive of ideas of people who that they think are intellectually inferior. So he's like, these two guys are idiots. They're holding up the project. Now I've got some power. Get out. Yeah, I, I think I think too that that's kind of an example of the stinginess of the five in that I just don't have the time and energy and bandwidth to sugarcoat this and be nice about it. So I just say things matter-of-factly, right? If you ask me if my sweater is ugly, I'm going to say, yes, your sweater is ugly. And 
no offense, I don't mean this is objectively true. That's an ugly sweater, and it doesn't fit, and you know, you know, and so forth. So, uh, so I agree with you. It wasn't. It wasn't this in these cases hostile. In that sense, it comes across as hostile because it's insensitive, for sure, right? And then there's a there's a difference there. But uh, great, I, I like that. T.J. Daw, what was five-ish about this movie for you? Well, just to build on that, he wasn't firing those two guys because they had slighted him in some way. You know, there's no earlier scene where they're excluding him or teasing him and he misunderstands it. It's very much the equivalent of saying, I need these two guys off my basketball team because they're too short. It's simply a statement of fact. They're mediocre linguists and bad code breakers. I need them off this team so the team will work better. I'm trying to solve a problem. If this was an engine, I would replace cogs that aren't the right shape. That's what these two guys are. Yes. Feelings, unnecessary. Don't need to go into that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, at the beginning of the movie, when he's brought into the team, he says, I prefer to work alone. I'm afraid these men will only slow me down. Similarly, he says this in front of them. Like, yes. just... <laughs> it combines disdain for less intelligent people as well as lack of sensitivity or even awareness of social graces. Like, I'm just stating a fact. I'm smarter than them. I'm one of the best mathematicians on the planet. He's not saying this. He says that in his interview and not in a self-aggrandizing way, right. but simply as a fact. Similarly to how somebody would say, I'm one of the tallest people on the planet. Right. Like, you can measure this. Right. This is what I bring to the table. Right. And he was also, on that point, objectively comparing himself to falling short of Newton and Einstein, right? So it's not like he was saying, I'm awesome, look at me. It's like, yeah, well, compared to Newton and Einstein, I'm a little behind the curve, but compared to these idiots, you know, it's a different story. Yeah, and he's not saying he's going to be the next Newton or Einstein or that he's going to surpass them. He's just very, at least from his point of view, objectively looking at like, who are the smartest mathematicians there's ever been? What have they done? What age did they do them at? Where do I fit in? Okay, I'm there. And here's this great puzzle. And fives are often puzzle solvers. They love an intellectual challenge. The entire TV series House was based on that. House is this expert doctor who only takes on cases that are challenging enough to interest him. So in the interview scene with Commander Deniston, played by Charles Dance, who was Tywin Lannister on Game of Thrones, another great one authority figure, yes. like many in yes. these movies. It's essentially you just took Tywin Lannister out of Game of Thrones and <laughs> dropped him into the imitation game. It's the imitation Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> we need a hard-ass one yes. to, to be in charge and to oppress our hero. Uh, he's not about. He's about to not get the job, and then he just volunteers the fact that he knows what they're trying to do is break the German Enigma machine. And he says, it's the greatest encryption device in history. And the Germans use it for all major communications. If the allies broke Enigma, it would be a very short war indeed. You need me a lot more than I need you. I like solving problems, Commander. And Enigma is the most difficult problem in the world. And the Commander says, everyone thinks Enigma is unbreakable. And he says, good, let me try and we'll know for sure, won't we? <laughs> Again, just stated as a fact. If I can't do it, nobody can. Yeah. But you can also feel the catnip of this like, hardest problem in the world dangling in front of them and that the five mind responds to that of like, oh, I want that. Give me that challenge. Give me the hardest challenge there is. Yeah. And um, again, we'll say, you know, I, I, I do want to, you know, reiterate that not every five is a genius and not every five is quite as intellectual. Some of them are, you know, their detachment is just about detaching from the world and um, they're not as interested in things. They're not huge reads. I know fives who don't read, for example. And you know, most people would say, oh, how can that be, you know, et cetera, et cetera. 
they just express their fodness in other ways, right? So for, for what it's worth. Um, so, um, yeah, but good stuff. Okay, what else, TJ Doll? Well, just to build on that too, a five might find a challenge in breeding the world's most beautiful orchid or the world's mm-hmm. largest orchid. Right. So they might be like a soil scientist and it's yes. practical. They might supplement that with reading, but they might be in there. And yeah. something Russ has said about fives is like fives like to get into things, which is why Riso Hudson calls five the investigator. I'm not just going to observe a problem. I'm going to get in there. I'm going to get my hands dirty. I'm going to get dirt under my fingernails as I'm trying all kinds of things. Lack of interest in social graces. There's a scene when Joan Clark, the Kira Knightley character, convinces Alan Turing that he's not going to succeed unless the team is on board with him. So he brings everybody an apple at work and then tells them a joke. And he tells it in this stilted, awkward way, very much as if he's a robot or an alien who has researched what humor is and has heard of it, but has never actually experienced it. And everyone just listens to this in kind of a curious, tolerant way of like, oh, look at this. Look what the robot's trying to do. (laughs) Tell a joke. It's not funny in the slightest, but he's trying. And Good job. We appreciate it. And I think that moment was, again, whether it was contrived or not, um, I think shows how people tend to feel about fives. That at first they take this uh, detachment, this directness, this insensitivity as something personal. And then something happens when they realize, oh, wait a minute, they're not doing this to be a jerk. They're, they really just don't get it. And they start to see this underlying sweetness of the five. And you'll see people's attitudes change toward that person pretty dramatically once they get, oh, now I get why they do this. And I think that was a great example of that. Yeah, it's very childlike in some ways. You know, a child will say something not because they're trying to hurt your feelings, because they haven't learned yet. Oh, you don't say these things in polite society. <laughs> yes, right. Exactly. Oh, well, why should I be nice to? Why should I talk to people? I had a client one time. I've told this story. I don't know if I've told it on the podcast before, but great guy, a five, brilliant, super nice guy. I would sit and meet with him and talk. He was just a really sweet guy, and everybody found him to be completely inscrutable and didn't know how to approach him, didn't know how to interact with him. And so I said to him one time, do you ever go out and engage with people in the, in the office? And he said, oh, no, but my door's always open. And I said, well, when's the last time one of those people walked through the door? And he just kind of laughed and he said, oh, well, that never really happens. And I said, okay, well, here's, you've got 200 people out there reporting to you. I want you to go out once a day, just walk around and talk to one of them. And he said, oh, that's a great idea. What should I talk about? And you know, and I thought, wow. And so we literally had, we had to make a list of conversation topics, and we had to put a schedule together of what time of the day he would go out and talk to people. And and it's not to your point, TJ. He just he just didn't know how to do this, right? It was foreign to him. But once he got it, it was great, and started to change the way people perceived him. Um, let's talk about subtype here, guys. Thoughts on the characters subtype. He's not a navigator. I know that. <laughs> yeah, I I would bet the lives of your children that he's not a navigator. Yes, <laughs> probably not a preserver either. I don't know that there was any preserving details in the entire thing. 
Yeah. So I think I think you guys are onto it. I think this was a transmitting five. And I now we got to bring up the autism thing. Okay. So this has been a piece of the conversation about this movie is, are they portraying somebody who's on the spectrum in some way? And I want to be really careful about that, right? Because that is a very specific area of expertise and I'm not going to pontificate on, you know, anything having to do with autism and personality styles. Okay. Uh, and I don't know enough about autism to really talk about it that much. Clearly, some of the behaviors of this character are what are described as, you know, us seeing as someone on the spectrum. Okay. So this may well have been somebody who is both, you know, on the spectrum and a transmitting five. Okay. But what I find with transmitting fives, to TJ and Gracia's point, what is the zone of indifference for transmitters? The navigating domain, right? I just, just have no interest in it. Don't pay attention to it. Just don't care about these social niceties and these interpretations of what people say. That was one of the interesting things when he's talking to Christopher early on. And he asks him the question of, well, it, you know, isn't that, that they're talking about the codes. And he says, well, isn't that like language? People say things and you're supposed to, but it's in code and people think you know what they mean. But how are you supposed to know, etc.? Transmitters, especially transmitting fives, can really struggle with that. And so they really, more than most of the other subtypes, can struggle with reading group dynamics that way. Thoughts? Navigating involves a lot of reading between the lines. Yes. So it very much makes sense that somebody whose navigation is their zone of indifference it's just not as attuned to that. It doesn't mean they can't figure it out. It doesn't mean that they can't get better at it. But yeah, the baseline way of existing in the world is like not so great at knowing when someone's lying to me. Not so great at knowing when someone's angling for a compliment. Like not only do I not recognize that, I don't really care. I, I don't find it very interesting. It also for me speaks to this transmitting domain being more than just sex, being more than just one-to-one, but it's about, I have this thing in me that needs to come out. Okay, The communication tends to be outward, not inward so much. I want to express things. Okay, um, And again, we see that in this character, right? Yeah, not a, you know, his sexuality was certainly an undercurrent, but, you know, that was not kind of what he was focused on. Uh, necessarily. And he clearly wasn't focused on one-to-one relationships, but he was transmitting for sure. I think him kind of owning the fact that he's one of the best mathematicians in the world is part of that too. Just this sense of like, I'm one of the greats and I'm destined for great things. I will do great things with this great mind of mine is very much a transmitter's attitude of like, I want to put my dent in the universe. Agreed. That's what I'm here to do. So TJ Dahl, you said this movie started to wear on you upon rewatching. Say more about that before we wrap up. Well, part of it, you know, we've been talking about the number of inaccuracies that are in there and that isn't unique to this movie. You know, like looking into it, I've found there was a number of them as we've talked about. Like he probably wasn't autistic in real life, supposedly had a keen sense of humor and good friends. He was described by colleagues as a very easily approachable man and his colleagues were very, very fond of him. 
He did speak German. He didn't separate his carrots and peas. He wasn't closeted to his coworkers. So there's there's that and any number of other inaccuracies in it, which felt really manipulative as I considered it, which is by design. And then there's also the fact that there's a line that was said, I think, three times in the movie. I think that sometimes it is the people who no one imagines anything of that do the things that no one could imagine. They say this like people speak like that, like in moments of tenderness, like any well, they real were person British. who's ever yeah, said something like, <laughs> oh, yes, well, here's this inspiring quotable phrase that I'll just reel off the top of my head. And then 20 years later, I'll repeat it to somebody else who really needs to hear it. Yeah. And there are a lot of people out there who we don't imagine anything of for really good reason. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, it always reminds me of whenever I hear some conspiracy theory crackpot saying, well, you know, they thought Galileo was crazy too, you know, and Semmelweis was crazy. And I say, yeah, dude, you know Galileo, right? I mean, come on, <laughs> yeah, you know, come on, right? So, yeah, I hear you. Yes. So, all of those fair points. And I love the movie. So, you know, for me, yes, it was depressing to read the Wikipedia page that points out all these errors. And you, you kind of go into these things like with A Beautiful Mind and so many other movies that are based on a true story sort of thing. Uh, you know, these are, um, these are movies. And to fit a complex life, in the midst of World War II and all these other huge events into a two-hour movie that is going to be interesting to people is not very easy to do. Uh, it would be a documentary series, uh, which, but, you know, I, I completely agree with you. There, it, it would be nice if they could make, take greater pains to be more accurate in some of these things. I can almost picture it as a comedy sketch of like, here's our movie about the most brilliant <laughs> mathematician in the world, and he's friendly and funny, and his coworkers like him, yeah. and he's functional. Well, you know, it was also, I noticed there was a another trope here, the weird five scientist pitted against the suave three scientist, who seems to be the top guy, but is just waiting to be taken down a peg by the quirky, weird, you know, hero of the movie. So it reminded the same sort of thing in A Beautiful Mind, and I'm sure it has been other places, but it was in this movie as well. Uh, a character we haven't talked about, Stuart Menzies, played by Mark Strong. Uh, was an, an excellent five character. Uh, and I'll tell you something, anything that Mark Strong is in, I will watch. I just love that guy. When he's in a movie, I'm in. Actor. I'm in. Just, yeah. oh, Mark Strong's in, I'm watching. And he's quiet. He sees everything. He usually doesn't say anything. He's gathering intelligence. He's keeping secrets. He's playing people like a puppet master. He's very much the five archetype of the mastermind. Right. And when he fishes and uncovers the fact that Turing knows who the Soviet spy is, there's a lot of subterfuge just in his manipulation. It's ultimately harmless, but he's just, oh, he knows what's going on. He knows exactly right. who the Soviet spy is. He had him placed there deliberately. He uses him to send the intelligence to the Soviets that he wants, which, by the way, also never happened. Like, no truth to any of that. But still, like, very much a great five archetype. And supposedly, yeah. that character is the basis for M in James Bond. Oh, interesting. And the letter yeah. M was taken from his last name, Menzies. Oh, interesting. I, I thought of him as kind of a polished uh, George Smiley, in a way. Right? The yeah. uh, Jean Le Carré um, character. Yeah. If you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds or our certification programs, 
visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media. Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one-on-one consulting on creative projects of all kinds, as well as Enneagram coaching. I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, go to youtube.com slash typecast. And if you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjingracia.com. We've uh, uh, had fun with the imitation game, so we're going to move on to our next movie, which is Annihilation. And now for something completely different. Uh, TJ Dahl, tell us about Annihilation. So Annihilation came out in 2018, written and directed by Alex Garland. And it tells the story of Lena, played by Natalie Portman, a former soldier who's now a biology professor. And her husband, Kane, played by Oscar Isaac, is in the U.S. Army. And he's been missing for a year and is presumed killed in action. And he reappears without any knowledge of where he was or how he got back before he starts hemorrhaging blood. So he's put in quarantine as she And it's revealed that he had been sent into something called the Shimmer, which is a mysterious and slowly expanding disruption of unknown origin and unknown properties encompassing a state park in a nearby town, which has long been evacuated. And no search party or equipment or animals have ever emerged from it until Kane somehow did. So Lena joins four other scientists, all women, as they go into the Shimmer. And once in there, After a number of strange occurrences, they conclude that what the shimmer does is it causes DNA to blend, mutate, and grow in any number of ways. As Lena makes it to the origin of the shimmer, based in the downstairs of a lighthouse, she discovers her husband's body because he had killed himself and been replaced by a double seemingly created by the shimmer itself. And then the shimmer soon creates a double for her which she hands a phosphorus grenade and the double then uses to ignite the alien life and somehow brings an end to the shimmer. And the story ends with her being reunited with the double of Cain and a close-up reveals that they both have DNA altered by the shimmer. And this alien life hasn't exactly evaporated, but will possibly live on in him and in the two of them as she has concealed this from the army interrogators who have been getting her story, which is the framework for the entire movie. Can you describe its form? No. Was it carbon-based? I don't know. Did it communicate with you? It reacted to me. You really have no idea what it was. Did your husband contact you at any point while he was away? No. It was his decision to go in. Why did my husband volunteer for a suicide mission? You have to tell me where he was, what he was doing. So this um, movie was um, based on the first of three novels in a trilogy, 
and the director said that he didn't reread the novel after reading it. He wanted the movie to be kind of a dream of the original novel. So you can kind of see with the ending when you that close-up reveals that their DNA has been altered. Ah, I see a sequel. I don't think, however, we're going to see Annihilation 2. Uh, for for better or worse, because it did not do well, as uh, has already been pointing out in the in the theaters, and it was a movie that did almost the opposite of the pulling on the heartstrings that we talked about in Imitation Game. Right, it dared you to like anything, anyone, you know, about, in this movie or about this movie. Right, it's like no, you're going to work, and even with the concepts that it was putting out there. Right. I was I was watching it with my wife and her her reaction afterwards said, "Okay, well, that's two hours. I'll never get back. Right. And so uh, so she was not a big fan. And and, you know, my wife's a reasonably bright person, but she would stop me a couple of times and saying, all right, what on earth is going on? What does that mean? Et cetera. Right. And, you know, there were a couple of times that I went ended up going to Wikipedia to say, all right, well, let me, let me dig into this a little bit. And what I loved about this movie, one of the things I loved about, it, I don't know that I would say, oh, I love this movie. I can't wait to watch it again, but it wasn't afraid to say, go get a dictionary, right? Yeah. You know, I'm not going to stop and explain things to you. You're going to work for, for, for this. Who does that sound like? <laughs> sounds like a five. <laughs> it sounds like a five. And that's why I said, you know, at the beginning of the episode, whether this character was a five or not, it was a movie made by a five. Okay? Whereas the other one was a movie made about a five by somebody who was not. So anyway, I, I interrupted and digressed. TJ Dahl, what was five-ish about this movie for you? Well, for one thing, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, flat affect. Both the Natalie Portman character and the Jennifer Jason Lee character. Jennifer Jason Lee plays a senior scientist. Both, I thought, were strong examples of fives, as you can see in their affect. They, the, the few times that they're pleased by something, it's a, if you rated smiles on a scale of 1 to 10, it would be like a 0. 0.3 of just this, oh, exactly the thing happened that I wanted to happen. Or something confirmed my theory. Ah, oh, good. And there's a smile that you can only see if you're looking for it. So they're, they're very much like that. They're not emotionally demonstrative. There's the search for knowledge. That's a big part of fives. Is like, I want to know more about the topic that I'm interested in. So, you know, in the interview between Dr. Ventress, Jennifer Jason Lee, and Natalie Portman's character, she says, why are you going into the shimmer? She says, mission statement is to reach the supposed source, acquire data, and return. But I don't think that that's your mission statement. No, I've been watching the phenomenon for a while now. I profile the volunteers. I pick the teams. They enter. I watch. I watch it grow closer. There's only so long I can do that. They need to know what's inside. Yes, I do. So do I. So there's this mystery happening, and I want to know what it is, and I'm only going to stand on the sidelines for so long. Something about fives that says in the wisdom of the Enneagram is fives are attracted to exceptions to the rules and the places where the rules break down. That's the whole premise of this movie. Here's this strange temporal anomaly that nobody understands where it comes from or what it does. Nothing returns from it, including electronic signals. So let's get in there. And once they do get in there, mysterious things are happening, which at least from the two fives does not elicit a response of, we got to get the hell out of here now. <laughs> Our lives are in danger. It's more like, oh, let's go deeper in. Let's find out more because this is getting juicier. 
for the part of me, which is a lot of me that wants to go into the unknown, wants to know something that nobody has ever known before. You mentioned um, the show House earlier and this idea of I'm only interested when this is interesting. Right. Don't don't bother me with run of the mill mundane, but I want a puzzle. I want something curious. I want something unique to figure out. And just to close the loop on our episode here, or at least, you know, tie a couple of things together. uh, House is based on uh, Sherlock Holmes. It's basically Sherlock Holmes goes to the hospital. And of course, Benedict Cumberbatch plays Sherlock Holmes in the wonderful BBC series where he plays another Transmitting Five, which is what House was as well. Uh, I've heard people make the argument that House is a six. Um, no, it's it's Transmitting Five for sure. So. Textbook Five, yeah. as, as is Cumberbatch's portrayal of Sherlock Holmes, probably Sherlock Holmes in general, but particularly Cumberbatch doing it. All these great scenes when he's explaining how he figured something out and the camera shows yes. how his thought process went from this to that, to this, to that, to this, to that. Right. The rapid fire brilliance of the five, like on display. It's beautiful to watch. Yeah. yeah. As well as his complete lack of social graces. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, TJ and Gracia, um, what was five-ish about this movie to you? Then I'll come back to you, TJ, Don't. Um, I mean, as you guys have said, it's a much more understated, uh, in some ways it almost felt like it's a little bit more realistic, at least in terms of its five portrayals. Whereas, you know, Alan Turing in the imitation game is almost like a caricature of, of that historical kind of person. And it's like, oh, these are, these women are fives maybe that you'd meet in real life. Now, yes. obviously there wouldn't be a, there's not a shimmer around a yes. lighthouse that they're going into, but, <laughs> uh, but, but more realistic. Yeah. There's a certain intrepid character characteristic to fives, right? Of wait, I want to understand this, and and we can. People can tend to think of fives as ineffectual in life, and that is not my experience. I've met athletes who were type fives, people who were you know very capable physically. Um, so her being a soldier, she was kind of a badass when that alligator came at them. She was not somebody who was wimpy or unafraid to engage with life, but still a five character for sure. Yeah. And maybe, you know, I don't know how, how much this would tie to real life, but at least in terms of the plot, it makes sense that you would need a character with that intrepid spirit who wants to go forth into the mystery, but also maybe... Um, who's unafraid or maybe even unaware or detached from the incredible danger, you know, whatever. It's been there for three years. No living organism has ever come out of this, except Lena's husband, who now has massive organ failure and is dying. But hey, let's go anyway, because we want to solve the mystery. I'm not not going into a shimmer. I got to tell you, I'm, you know, I'm a reasonably confident guy. No, somebody says there's a shimmer over there. I'm heading the other way. Okay, so uh, one one thing that I noticed that again was kind of a mark because again to to your point, this is not a stereotype of a five, which is one of the things that was so nice about it. But there was that interesting scene where she's teaching the class in the beginning, and she's sitting off to the side, right? She's not standing in front of the class; she's kind of sitting off to the side and talking with that very flat affect. And there was another scene where she's in bed with um, Oscar Isaac. And uh, starts explaining something to him. I, f- I forget exactly what she was explaining to him. Some um, s- about cell division and uh, sen- senescence. And he says, I get really turned on when you condescend to me. 
which again is that very you know five-ish sort of I'm smarter than you and I'm going to let you know it sort of quality but what else about the movie well another scene of the two of them in bed is he's talking about how you know I can't tell you where I'm going on my next deployment but it's in this hemisphere so you can trust that when we look at the stars and the moon we'll be looking at the same stars and moon and she laughs (laughs) and you think that's what I do while you're away is go outside and look at the stars and pine oh I wonder if he's looking at the moon and the stars the same as me and like Many people actually would sincerely think that. But again, to a five, it's like, don't insult me with that maudlin sentiment. Like, it's beneath both of our intelligences to even suggest that. And she teases him. She becomes condescending in a playful way. Okay, so let me ask the two of you, what the hell is this film trying to tell me? (laughs) What am I supposed to take away from this? It's trying to tell you you're not smart enough to figure out what it's trying to tell you, TJ. Well, that's clearly the case. (laughs) TJ Daw, any thoughts on that? Yeah, there's a... um, Well, for one thing, Russ Hudson, who has met David Lynch and loves David Lynch's movies and quotes them all the time, said that David Lynch himself claims that he does not know what his movies mean. And he doesn't care to find out because all kinds of people come up with theories of like, this is what really happened in Mulholland Drive. This is what's really going on in Twin Peaks. And he has no time for any of that. Let it be abstract. Let it be bizarre. Let it be unknowable. And same with the ending of 2001. It's deliberately obscure. It's, it does not spell it out for you. So I think there's a lot of that going on in this is like, you're not supposed to know what's going on. But a major theme in this is self-destruction. And there's that scene where Dr. Ventress just talks about it. She says, you know, almost none of us commit suicide, but almost all of us self-destruct in some way, in some part of our lives. We drink, we smoke, we destabilize the good job, the happy marriage. These aren't decisions. They're impulses. In fact, you're probably better equipped to explain this than I am. You're a biologist. Isn't self-destruction coded in us, programmed into each cell? So there's the fact that Every member of this party that goes into the shimmer has some bit of baggage. You know, one person is an addict. One person is struggling with suicidal ideation. One person is grieving the loss of a child and grieving the loss of their former self. And it comes out that Natalie Portman's character had cheated on her husband and that he had found out about it. And that's why he volunteered to go into this mission where there was a strong likelihood that he would never return. This is said very subtly, you know, like it's, you do not get conked over the head as an audience member with this. But it is it is this bizarre element of being a human being, self-destructive impulses, which is completely germane to studying the Enneagram because that's what's that's kind of the theory of the Enneagram is a lot of us take the thing in our personality and self-destruct with it. So why do we do that? How does that happen? What can we do when we're aware of that? That's part of it. But then another part of it is just the truly mind-bending bizarreness of this alien intelligence. And I have to say, this movie altogether, but particularly the climax, when the alien intelligence underneath this lighthouse, which where there's that hole in the floor with all the roots coming out of the sides, how many people watching it are thinking, oh yeah, I'd climb in that hole? (laughs) Not many. (laughs) Not this one, that's for sure. But that five does, and she goes in and finds Dr. Ventress sitting cross-legged, communing with the intelligence, and then somehow light blasting out of her as her body then disintegrates and the whole thing glows. And again, Lena does not run screaming. She stays there watching it. 
And then the alien intelligence crystallizes into these bizarre shapes of light continually unfolding. And it's not only mesmerizing, but that scene in particular and the feeling of the whole movie altogether really, to me, brought echoes of transformative ceremonies that I've participated in involving high doses of antigens and psychedelics. So uh, I'm going to put a slightly different spin on this while taking the, um, I can't remember if it was Homer or Bart Simpson, summary of the meaning of life is, oh, Marge, life's just a bunch of stuff that happens. Okay. So for me, uh, yes, self-destruction is a thing. And the takeaway for me is that life always finds a way. Okay. So they ended up with this mutation in them. And this is the beauty of evolution because there's a whole lot of evolutionary biology in this, right? This whole idea of cell division and mutation, um, for example, and the whole idea of refraction of the DNA was this idea of life continues through mutation and adaptation to the environment. Okay. And I always think when I, I, I love going into the desert for very short times, but finding these little tiny bushes in the oddest of places, and particularly when it's on the wall of a cliff and you see this clump of dirt and you see this thing growing out of it because somehow some seed found its way to that clump of dirt and managed to spring to life, right? Life always finds a way in the midst of destruction. And I would disagree with Freud a little bit this way in this idea of us having a death um, instinct. It's we have this impulse to do things that pass on our genes, okay? Because that's what evolution is. It's just the only reason that anything exists is because the thing before found a way to pass on its DNA, in some way, right? So life propagates. And if it didn't, it wouldn't be here. So things are selected for their ability to propagate. But once the genes are passed on, they become irrelevant. Okay, The reason that nobody lives to a thousand is because they're not irrelevant anymore. Okay, We live to a point where we are able to reproduce and then we stick around long enough to help our offspring bring their children to reproduction age and then we sort of start to break down why because there's no evolutionary pressure for humans to live any longer than that okay. and that's when we run for president that's <laughs> well these days that's what it seems to be right uh so so for me the the you know i don't think there's a message to this movie other than this fascination with this constant process of death, destruction, and reproduction in all its weird and colorful forms that can happen in ways that we will never understand, right? So are we supposed to understand exactly how this refraction of DNA worked and what the hell that big giant floating eyeball was? Eh, probably not, right? And that's okay because some things we just don't get, right? So I don't think there was a meaning to it. But I like to think that part of it was at least, you know what? Life's pretty freaking weird, okay? And things die and things grow and things live and life's just a bunch of stuff that happens. And that's pretty darn cool. 
And that's a very five-ish sentiment as well. That, that, and that's and that's my point, right? So I think that that's the you know the kind of the five-ish theme. It's not purely negative, right? About you know everything you know de- uh, you know becomes annihilated. That in a way, nothing really does. Yeah. All right. Well, that was fun, and I'm sure. Alex Garland would say, these guys have no freaking clue what they're talking about, you know, but, <laughs> but that's okay. It's our podcast and we get to say whatever we want. All right. So, uh, so with that, uh, uh, TJ Dahl, tell us about other five related movie themes. For one thing, there are, I think, an overabundance of fives in the canon of well-known film directors. So here's just the ones that I, that came to me, Christopher Nolan, Stanley Kubrick, David Fincher, David Lynch, David Cronenberg, Darren Aronofsky, Werner Herzog, Lars von Trier, Ari Aster, Tim Burton, Terry Gilliam, Jim Jarmusch, and Christopher Guest. That sounds like a, uh, I'm going to go kill myself afterwards movie festival. Uh, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) If there was a film festival of the works of any of those, yeah, you'd find a lot of fives in the audience. A lot of people who don't see too much of the sun. Right. Uh, you'll find a lot of fives working behind the scenes in movies is my guess. You know, pe- the kind of people who work in technical departments who, whose names and faces the public never find out, and they are fine with that. One such person is Walter Murch, who is a sound and video editor who worked on such famous movies as The Godfather and Apocalypse Now. And there's a great book of interviews with him called The Conversation, where he was interviewed by Michael Andante, who wrote the novel, The English Patient, and they met on the set of The English Patient. And he talks about his process, both working in film and outside of film. And he's got an eclectic series of interests. So he translates the work of an obscure Italian poet. He can play the music of the spheres on piano, which is based on the distances between planets. He's an expert on bees, things that uh, Clay Toomey, who was an expert, or pardon me, who was a guest on our um, Shawshank episode said, things that he would have no business knowing he knows a lot about. And genres, I would say horrors, horror movies and nightmare kind of movies, disturbing movies are very much the five territory. Spy movies like we talked about, the more quiet, like realistic spy movies, science fiction as opposed to space fantasy. So not Star Wars and not Star Trek, where there's no reference to like, how do they travel at light speed? How do they maintain gravity on their ships? But like science fiction that's grounded in at least some reality, like The Martian or Interstellar. Uh, dark offbeat comedies like Terry Gillum's movies or Christopher Guest's movies, documentaries, talked about that with type one, but fives love going down a rabbit hole. So if it's an obs- a documentary on an obscure subject that's, that the five is interested in, that leads to another and another and another, that's all to the good. Experimental films. And finally, B-movies. If you've ever known somebody who watches B-movies ironically, and loves to catcall them, like the cast of Mystery Science Theater 3000. That is very much five territory of like, let's dig into this obscure, forgotten treasure trove of really bad movies, and let's get in there, and let's look at how bad they are, and let's sneer at the creators, as well as like the the unexpected brilliance that can come up, or just the ham-fisted acting and writing and directing. Let's get in there, and all its ooey-gooey goodness slash badness. Great. Uh, yeah, great, great stuff. Uh, this this was fun. I, I really liked both of these movies, and I hear everything T.J. Daw is saying about the imitation game. I think that the, the sort of saccharine quality could wear thin 
upon repeated viewings. Uh, again, made me think of a beautiful mind or Cinderella man, um, as well. I felt had some of those same sort of qualities, although that was not a, a five character, but it was a Ron Howard joint. So, um, yeah, you know, that sort of filmmaking, it's what this movie made me think of, but good, good movies, go watch them. And, uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and join us on social media.